Would you join with me in Genesis chapter 24? Genesis chapter 24. This morning, I want to deliver a message entitled, and it's not misspelled, Mowage and Truwav as you wish. I'm taking this title from um, the movie Princess Bride, which has got to be the most quotable movie in the last 30 years. And I'll be quoting it uh, for, uh, in, in the coming weeks as well. But the impressive clergyman has got a speech impediment and pronounces marriage, mowage, and love, love, is how he does that. But that is really a high point in the uh, particular movie and it, it, because it is a romantic comedy. Uh, Wesley ends up uh, identifying himself with the phrase, as you wish. And so I've put those two together, and I want to offer you today the hope that you can have mowage and true love <laughs> as you wish. No one who ever marries, marries with the desire to divorce. No one who marries, marries pessimistically, even if they think they're making a mistake. It's kind of an odd tension and conflict that takes place in the hearts of some on that day. Everyone who marries, marries with the sincere intention of remaining faithful, true, loyal, and married to uh, the husband or wife until death do us part. It's not like we, one evening, one Wednesday night, we were driving to church when we were still in Texas, and Sarah Kate was only about five years old, and she began to inform us that she was going to have six children, and she was going to name them David, Sherry Michelle, Jonathan, Hannah Grace, and then she thought she'd have to name a child after herself, to name them after our family member. She, she eliminated that child and went on to um, Luke. And so immediately she reduced it to five. And I thought, well, here's a teachable moment. And, and that's one of the good things about driving together when you go places and keeping radios and other things that are off. A lot of teachable moments arise in that time. And I said, well, Sarah Kate, you know, of course, before you have children, you need to have a husband. Uh, I said, do you think you'll have a husband? And she said, well, I'm so beautiful, I think I'll just have lots of them. <laughs> now look, she was just five years old, okay? And that gave us an opportunity uh, to come in and assassinate that idea <laughs> and to set her straight uh, that uh, God's ideal of marriage is one man, one woman for life until death do them part. And that is the heart and commitment of the Word of God. There's some myths that we've got to address before we get into how to find a um, how to find marriage and true love. And that is the, the love myth. And that is uh, you marry the one you love. Well, I hope that you'll love the one you marry, but you need to understand human emotions are so fickle, you can fall in love with anybody. You've got to be careful. Uh, you don't marry simply because you love someone, though that needs to be a part of it. You marry because it's God's will, and you're certain of it. In fact, I'll go so far as to say uh, what our psychology professor in school said in chapel one day. He said, the Bible does not teach to marry the one you love. It teaches to love the one you marry. And there's a world of difference. I'll tell you, Sherry Michelle and I have been married nearly 25 years, and the love I have for her today is so much greater than what it was when we first married. I'm almost embarrassed to call what we had when we first married love. In fact, today she takes my breath away, more now than ever before. It doesn't even compare to what we had when we were younger. I don't know the feeling's mutual. I suspect it is, but it is on my part. <laughs> 
Thank you, Doug. I appreciate that vote of affirmation, honey, especially in front of 400 people. Uh, so there's the love myth. Then there's the test drive myth. And this is the rationale of some who cohabitate together or, uh, in probably more accurate and vulgar terms, they shack up and become sexually involved and set up a home before actually marrying one another. I've heard one young man say, well, you never buy a car without first test driving it. And I thought to myself, immediately, you will not come within 10 feet of my daughters. <laughs> You'll not treat them like a vehicle. They're much more valuable and worthy. There's enormous problems with this, especially fornication, which incurs the fury and the wrath of God. And so I'm not surprised that the research shows 70% of those who shack up or cohabitate before marriage end up in divorce. It's higher than the national average. There's another myth, and that is the needs myth. You get married because you hope someone will meet your needs. And I think that there are probably some needs a spouse can meet, but do not expect a spouse to meet them all. Only God can do that. And as much as you admire your spouse, your spouse is not God. That's too much of a burden to bear. You've got to have a vital, growing, robust relationship with Jesus Christ for your needs to be met. And he may meet, meet that through marriage and family, a number of them, but not all of them. And so we've, we've got to have a clear view of what it means to be married. Now, let me tell you why I'm addressing this issue. There are several reasons. One is influence. Proverbs 13, 20 says, He who walks with the wise shall be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer destruction. Influence. Your spouse will be the biggest influence in your life, the rest of your life, and will be the largest influence on the lives of your parents and siblings and children in the future. You must choose wisely. And then, children. God says in Malachi 2, 14 to 16, I hate divorce because I'm looking for a godly offspring. There is something about the permanence of marriage which fuels children to walk with God. And the stability of a marriage relationship is a deciding factor in the stability and the growth and the godliness and the maturity of children. The third is divorce. Jesus in Matthew 19, 1 through 10 eliminated it and prohibited it except in the case of, 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 of adultery. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 in the case of abandonment. And I, I will say to you, you want to get this right because it is nearly impossible to extract an ex-spouse completely from your life. It's very difficult. They never go away, especially if children are uh, involved. And then finally, another reason I'm addressing this is because of Christ. Ephesians 5.32 says that marriage models the relationship between Christ and His church. Uh, Christ fulfills the role of the husband. Uh, individual Christians and the church fulfill the role of the bride. And when we have solid marriages, we end up demonstrating before the world what it means to follow Jesus Christ as Savior. And marriage ends up being the model and the image of that. Marriage then is a gospel issue. It is a primary issue. And it is an issue that churches and Christians should address, no matter how difficult and controversial it may be in a culture. And they dare not reduce their commitment to biblical marriage. Now, that's what we find in Genesis chapter 24. In Genesis chapter 24, we have the longest chapter in Genesis. Genesis 24 is the longest chapter in Genesis, and it has just one subject, and that is Abraham finding a bride for his son, Isaac. So it dominates the theme. In fact, it comes as no surprise to me, because the biblical storyline and the kingdom unfold along family and marriage lines. You begin the Bible with the marriage with Adam and Eve, 
and their sons Cain, Abel, and Seth. That unfolds to Noah and his family that are rescued on the ark. Uh, that unfolds into Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and how that family unfolds. Well, they give birth to Isaac. He marries Rebekah. And out of that marriage and union, there is Jacob and Esau. And that dominates the biblical storyline. And then from there, Jacob has 12 sons. They marry and they become the 12 tribes of Israel. And we're still dealing with them today in many ways. Sometimes sad, many times happy with uh, that uh, outcome. And then you've got Joseph who marries and has uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And they dominate the biblical storyline there from Genesis chapter 37 and on. We go on and on throughout the scripture with David's family and Solomon's family. And then we have family salvation or household salvation in the New Testament, which um, uh, is the doctrine that when the dad comes to Christ first in the family, the likelihood of the rest of the family coming is exponentially greater than if someone else in the family comes to Christ first. I believe in household salvation. Every individual must personally come to Christ, mind you. But the father is a powerful influence on a family. And the family is hardwired to follow the leadership and the example of the dad. I'll address this sometime later, but there is enormous power in fathers and families, whether they realize it or not. They're really the most powerful person in the family. And that's not to minimize the contribution of mothers or others, but they are powerful. Now, in verses 1 through 9, we have the assignment Abraham gives to his servant, Eliezer, to go find a bride for Isaac. In verses 10 through 14, he pleads with God for help and direction. In verses 15 to 28, he sees his prayer answered when he encounters Rebekah. In verses 29 to 51, he deals with Rebekah's older brother and her father in discussing uh, this uh, uh, proposal for Rebekah to marry Isaac. Verses 52 to 61, they return back to the promised land where Abraham and Isaac are. And then verse 62 to 67, there is a marriage that takes place. And so Isaac goes from being a single man to marrying Rebekah, and Rebekah becomes the president of the club of women who married beneath themselves. My wife is now in that role, and she'll take subscriptions later. But in any case, that's what we have here in Genesis chapter 24. So the Lord arranged the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah with many moving parts in the decision-making process. And the two verses I want us to look at are in the middle and at the end of the chapter. In verse 27, this is what he says when he discovers Rebekah and God answers his prayer, that he would lead him to Isaac's bride. Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth towards my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me. And I want you to be able to say that when you find the spouse that you'll marry. And then verse number 50. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, This thing comes from the Lord. I want you to believe that about your spouse. And I want you to believe that after your first anniversary, and your 10th, and your 25th, and your 50th. By the way, uh, you may not be aware, but you're in a church where since our history in 1959, we have had 64 couples celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary here at Beach Haven. That is a significant part of our legacy. Now, there are many who have not, but they had a spouse die early in life or had a difficult marriage at the beginning, and, and they went on and, and were together with um, their spouse until death do them part. And so we've got a marvelous legacy of marriage 
here at Beach Haven. And I want to assure you, on the authority of God's Word, God can arrange your marriage. And He's very willing to do so. How is that? Well, several things. Several things to look for and to practice when looking for a spouse. One, service. Will this person help me serve God's mission? Abraham was on mission, and God had given a mission to bless the nations. And the word blessed could be understood as the word saved. Through Abraham, salvation would come to the world, but he would have to produce descendants. And of course, you're familiar with the story. God made that promise to him at 75, and it did not come about till Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah was 90. And so you've got this grandmother wheeling up to the emergency room at the hospital with a walker. And uh, she says, I, I, need the, um, I need the labor and delivery ward. And the nurse says, well, are you here to see a baby? She says, no, I'm here to have one. And that's what happened. And Isaac was the product of that particular union. Through Isaac would come Jacob. Through Jacob would come the 12 tribes of Israel. Through Jacob would come the tribe of Judah, through whom would come the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is on a mission. And in chapter 24, verse number 3, this is why Abraham was so intense. He made Eliezer swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. And in verse 6 he said, Do not take him back to that land from which I come. Go find a bride back in that land where they share the same faith, but don't take him back there because we have to fulfill God's command to remain in this land. And so Abraham from the very beginning was intense about his son fulfilling the mission God had given this family. Mary, if marriage to this person, in that marriage to this person, the two of you can advance God's mission better together than you can alone. Never marry anyone who will hinder the mission of God in your life. How will I know? It'll be pretty obvious if you'll give it some time. Examine this person's past to forecast your future. That is enormously important. I'll say it again and several times throughout the balance of the message. Examine this person's past to forecast your future. Without a significant crisis in life, most people don't change. And so do not, do not be naive in thinking the love of a good woman can change any man. Don't think that. Examine the past in order to forecast the future. And the same is true when a young man is looking for a bride. So examine the past to forecast your future. Do not marry an unbeliever. It's prohibited by Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. And quite frankly, dating unbelievers is a waste of time. Uh, do not marry a nominal Christian. 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. I'm not buying it, are you? There'd be a lot of stuff that would be less and some things that would be more if that were the case. And so someone who is a Christian in name only is not adequate for your future. Do not marry someone who is careless about holiness or negligent on the things of God. Marry somebody and pursue somebody that is leather-long, flat-footed, broad-shoulder, proud of Jesus Christ. So service. Will this person help me promote and advance God's mission? But the second thing is prayer. Pray as if you could make the biggest mistake in your life, but you don't want to. Pray with that desperate sense and urgency. That's what the servant does in chapter 24, verses 12 through 14. He cries out to God, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day and show kindness to my master Abraham. 
Behold, here I stand by the well of the water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, Please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, Drink, and I will also give your camels a drink. Let her be the one you've appointed for your servant Isaac. So he prayed, and he asked for a particular guidance and element of guidance and direction. He, was to, he asked God, when I say, please give me a drink from this well, which was private property, then I pray she'll do that, but go further as well and offer water to my camels. He had 10 camels, and these camels could drink, some say, 10 gallons of water at a time. And later you'll find in the text, she goes down to the well and comes back up, and she does that very thing. And God answers his prayer. Pray over this matter with urgency and desperation. A lot is riding on this decision. Now, I came from a background that really discouraged me from having any hope in this area. I may tell you a little bit more about it later in days to come or weeks to come, but uh, my father's parents were married and divorced three times from each other. Lots of chaos. My own parents had been divorced. Now, I had a little reason for optimism. My mother's parents had been married to each other by the time of my grandfather's death in 1995 for 71 years. And so I had some encouragement there and um, was encouraged by that. But in college and in seminary, I had 25 close friends and 25 uh, not-so-close friends, but people I could count on, who before they graduated were divorced and excluded from ministry. I want to say to you, you need to pursue God with desperacy, de de uh, desperation and urgency over this matter. All of the satanic forces available to your case are aligned and arrayed against you doing well in this area. I will say to you, God's people may be dead and lifeless and casual about prayer, about marriage, but Satan is never casual or careless about creating havoc and mischief. Never is. Your prayers have got to be urgent and desperate. And so I made out a prayer list. And I would pray over it every Sunday afternoon. I'd pray for it briefly every day. But I would take special time every Sunday afternoon to plead with God over this prayer list. I had four categories and about 10 to 15 verses next to each one of these categories. And I pleaded with God to do a work in my heart, my life, and not only would I find the right one, but I would be the right one. So that's how I started my prayers. And I prayed for my future wife and my future children and my future home and claimed about 10 or 15 scriptures next to each of those. And a couple years later, I was telling about that as I was working a youth camp and a staff member asked me for that prayer list. And she took it down and wrote it down. And two years later, I married her. So it's a wonderful thing and a lot of assurance to know our walk and relationship was built in prayer. I want to encourage you to pray similarly with, desperate, uh, with a desperate heart and urgency, but also to enlist seven prayer warriors to pray for you about this matter. People that are faithful in prayer and fervent in prayer and even will fast and pray for you over this matter. In fact, our church is going to observe a Pray For Me campaign, especially for university students, for college students, and we want you to be a part of that, and we'll pray for you about that. But there's a third thing, origins. What about this person's family history? 
The servant can point back to Isaac's family in verse number 35 and say something that is entirely true. And the whole earth has examined Abraham's life and Abraham's family and have confessed this verse in verse 35 is true. The Lord has blessed my master greatly and he has become great. In other words, part of the servant's appeal for Isaac was his family and his father, Abraham. And it can be as well in your case. Examine this person's past family experience to forecast your future. What is the parent's marriage like? What is the attitude of this person towards his or her parents? What, what is their relationship with, uh, with one another? What happens at weddings and funerals? And what is the atmosphere like at Christmas and at Thanksgiving? I will tell you, if a family is in unresolved conflict, it will usually crop up and appear like a flash and like a lightning at a wedding, a funeral, Christmas, or Thanksgiving. And it will usually have nothing to do with what's going on at the wedding, the funeral, Christmas, or Thanksgiving. You've got to watch that kind of thing and see how they relate to one another. And here's why. Usually, what we do is that without thinking about it, we unconsciously attempt to reproduce our parents' marriage into our own. Unless there is conscious thought and intentional decisions and significant change within us, we unconsciously attempt to reproduce our parents' marriage into our own. Now, that's good news for many of you. For some of you, I know you want to climb under the pew. I know. I've been there. But for most of us, it's somewhere in between. But it is always a call to change and to experience the change that we need that we might be suitable and fit for the honorable person that God will bring our way with whom we will share true love and marriage. Origins. But the third, the fourth, the fifth thing, the fourth thing, understanding. Discern this person's understanding. How mature are they in their understanding? Verse 17 and, uh, excuse me, verse 14 indicates this. He cried out that there would be something of a sign to direct him, that she would do more than what is requested. He asked for water for himself, but then she offered to provide water for his camels. She was mature because she went beyond what was requested. She had a strong work ethic. She was considerate. She had forethought. She had sympathy, obviously. Had been on a long trip. Camels needed watering as well. And she was willing to work hard. Uh, one commentator said about Rebecca, when she watered the camels of this servant, that she was a female Abraham. She knew how to, how to uh, offer hospitality, which is precisely what Abraham did in Genesis chapter 18. And so she reminds readers in chapter 24 of the Abraham of Genesis chapter 18. Well, how do I know if this person is mature or not? Let me give you some practical questions. And let me ask you questions about the person, and I'm going to add the family as well, though this will not show up on the slides of the PowerPoint. How does this person or the family handle work? Eliezer the servant traveled 500 miles in order to get back to Abraham's homeland to find this bride. And then Rebekah worked as well, watering 10 camels. Then, how does this person and the family respond to anxiety? The servant, when he had this task, prayed and turned it over to God and watched for God to work. Everyone needs to know how to handle anxiety without constantly having a mega meltdown. 
then how does this person and how does the family deal with conflict? As I said, in weddings and funerals, Christmas, Thanksgiving, uh, is, is their history and their past littered with broken relationships or cherished relationships? Then who does this person or who does this family admire? Who do they admire? With whom do they have sympathy? Well, the servant in verse 35 obviously admired Abraham. Then, how does this person or this family take advice? They took counsel and were able to negotiate with each other in verses 56 to 57. Somebody with the attitude, my mind is made up, don't confuse me with the truth. It's probably someone that you need to be a bit cautious about. So, what this is going to take then is uh, a little patience and a willingness to observe the person over a period of seasons, maybe a year, maybe two, perhaps more. Do not meet your spouse one day and get married three weeks later. I cannot tell you how often that has happened. Now, I did, in one church I pastored, help five couples in my church in North Carolina to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. We did it five times in one year, and for our church, that was a lot. Five 50th wedding anniversaries in one year, the year 1996. Well, 50 years before that, what era was it in American history? It was the World War II era. And all of these fellows went to war, they came back, and they married their bride. And some of them came back, and they began to date a girl, and three weeks later were married. In fact, nearly all of them had a similar story. And if it wasn't three weeks, it was like three months. Well, I began to dig in to their history. And I found out they didn't know each other for three weeks or three months, then get married. They just started dating and got married soon after. They had known each other since the first grade. And their families had known each other a generation and sometimes two back. And so they had the advantage of at least 15 years of observation of this person in stress, work opportunities, church opportunities, and the like. And so that is, uh, that's how they approached it. They had a mature understanding. There's a, there's a fifth item, and that is spending. In chapter 24, verse 35, he says, The Lord has blessed my master greatly. He's become great. And he's given him flocks and herds and silver and gold and male and female servants, camels and donkey. In other words, Abraham was financially responsible. Early in marriage, money is almost always an issue. It does not need to be an issue when you get married. You've got to be very, very careful. In fact, Proverbs 24, 27 says, Prepare your work in the field first, then build your house. Someone who rushes into marriage without proper financial provisions probably needs to find the brakes on this car that's a little out of control. And if this person cannot discipline himself or herself to spin right, there are probably some other areas of life that are undisciplined as well. And most undisciplined adults do not improve their financial money management without some kind of crisis. And frankly, I don't suggest you be there. Take care of that first. And that's why I'm speaking Wednesday night on this very topic at six o'clock in our worship service. The sixth item is this, elders. What do parents, and I'd say siblings, say about this possible union? 
I remember after Sherry Michelle and I had been married a year, I got a strange note, at least a note that I thought was strange, from her youngest sister. And it was about a year after we'd been married, and it said something like, I didn't know you, and I was a little suspicious of you when you first came into the family, or something to that effect. But now, I've watched you for a year, and I think you're okay. <laughs> and I thought, well, you 12th grade twerp, why are you evaluating me? How about I write a note to you? You finally accept me. I was, I was a little annoyed by it, but you know what? I have watched her youngest sister now for 25 years, and it's dawned on me that Heather sees these kinds of relationships not as just a relationship between her oldest sister and me, but with the whole family. And she watches the large pieces of the family. And I was the first in-law to come along. We were the first marriage. That's what we were. We, we had the first baby, the first two. Not the first three, but the first two. This was large and enormous. And so it doesn't surprise me that for nearly 25 years, or 22, that Jonathan has been around and our other children, that she has been all in and fully committed with zeal, with energy, with finances, with heart, with soul, with affirmation to every kid in my family because she sees this as a family decision. And that's how she viewed it. You know what, that is wise. That was a whole lot wiser response than the response I had when I first saw the note. I've got to tell you, these are family decisions. Now somebody might complain about this text and say, now wait a minute, this marriage here is prearranged and we don't do that here. It really is not all that prearranged. It wasn't prearranged at all. A servant went out to find Isaac a bride. Isaac really didn't get a choice, but Rebecca did. In verses uh, 57 and 58, they ask her, well, will you go with this man to be Isaac's bride? And they left it up to her, and she said, I will go. And so without knowing the young man, everything else was in line, and she pursued the marriage, and the whole world is different because of it. It's remarkable. I'm not suggesting we go back to marriages exactly like this. But what I would say to you is this. Marriage merges two individuals and two families. You not only marry an individual, you marry into a family. And so you ask yourself the question, do I want this person to influence my family? Do I want this person to influence my children? You need to know also, fellas, you not only marry a wife, you marry a mother. Do you want her as the mother of your children? Ladies, you not only marry a husband, you marry a father. And that's not all. You marry an in-law, a son-in-law. Do you want him to have this impact upon your parents and your siblings? Do you want to carry this person to Christmas, Thanksgiving, weddings, and funerals? Does this person have the maturity to, to deal with that kind of environment? And the same is true when it comes to a future wife. You're marrying a daughter-in-law. You're marrying a sister-in-law. And so, I want to strongly suggest that you do something that, uh, that I did and many others have. I decided early on that I was going to give my parents veto power over any decision I made about a future marriage. 
course, you know what happened. I only carried one girl out to see them, and they were okay with it. But I had sincerely decided I would do that, and if they were uncertain, and I didn't tell them they had veto power, okay? <laughs> but secretly, privately, I decided they had veto power, okay? I didn't want it to go to their head. But I had decided that if they had problems, Sherry Michelle and I were going to slow this down and take time and answer concerns and deal with them and keep walking uh, very patiently if we felt that that is what God wanted us to do. And, and so I would suggest to you, you give your family veto power, but more than that, I would suggest you give a premarital counselor veto power as well. I do not believe that we are in a day any longer where any couple, young or old, can afford to get married without premarital counseling. In fact, I've got some requirements for marriage of young couples and older couples. For young couples, that they do premarital counseling and that they have their parents, at least their parents' blessing. For older couples, if they have adult children, I want the adult children to give them their blessing as well. If they do not, they will be in my office within a year contemplating divorce, each of them, young and old. And I'm, I'm pretty dogmatic over that as well. I'm not very willing to bend on that. Um, there might be some exceptional cases, and I certainly understand that, but that's been my practice now since 1991. I do that because my senior year in college, probably the man uh, I admire as much as I do, Tommy Fountain Sr., uh, went through a divorce. And I was with him every day for eight months as he peeled back the layers of this nasty onion of this rotten relationship he had with this deceptive uh, young woman. I, I trusted him. He was a spiritual counselor and mentor to me. I looked up to him, and he guided me in how to walk with Christ. And here he was suffering in this way. had a lot of college friends at the time that were going through that. By the time I finished seminary, I had 25, 25 ministerial friends whose um, wives have left them uh, for a variety of reasons. Now, there were many differences between them, but I found four things in common amongst them. One, the day they were married, they knew they were making a mistake, and they didn't call it off. I want to say to you, if you come to the day of your wedding and you think you're making a mistake and I'm performing your wedding, you come tell me and I'll let you leave the side door and go on home. And I'll come out and I will tell them the wedding's over. We need to postpone this until there's some clearer thinking. If you think you're making a mistake the day of your marriage, don't marry. I don't care how much money has been spent. It's not worth it. There's a second thing. They each identified detrimental attitudes and behaviors in the person they were to marry while dating. They saw some things they knew that would torpedo the relationship. The third thing is, they did not do premarital counseling. None of them. None of them. We do that here at Beach Haven. And number four, each of their parents objected. In fact, Bill's future in-laws objected, not because they didn't like Bill. They didn't like their daughter. They didn't trust her. And they did not want to trust and trust the ministry of an evangelist to their daughter. They didn't think that her life and spirit and attitude and behavior was worthy of a man of God like that. 
talked to one man who was very wise in marriage that summarizes much of what I'm saying here. He said, if it fizzles in the finish, it was probably at fault from the first. And most people end up knowing that. That's not always the case. I would say and add to that, if it flourishes to the end, it was favored from the first. You need to make sure you're doing God's will. That's more important than any other element here. Now to summarize, look for service. Will this help me serve God's mission? Are you praying desperately? Have you gathered seven to fast and pray fervently for you? What's the origin, the family background of this person? What is their understanding, their maturity of significant issues in life? How do they spend money? And do we have the blessing of our family? You might be saying, well, my goodness, I've got to marry somebody perfect. I mean, Jesus' twin brother or twin sister. No, not necessarily. You need to approach this like an admissions committee in a graduate school. I sat on committees to admit doctoral students at Southwestern Seminary, and we had about five criteria, and we would measure them. Sometimes a student's grade point average would be on the borderline of admission, but they would write a great research paper, and so we would balance that. Sometimes the interview was not all that good, but their references were marvelous, and so we would balance that. Uh, sometimes their entrance exam would struggle, but their grade point average was rather high. And we would clarify some of these things in the interview. So there might be one area that's struggling some. It's not gross, but it might be borderline. But there's another area that's high. And so we would admit the student, watch them, walk with them. We were very tight, close, intimate with our students and uh, would usually get them through. And with that process and some of the other things I did, we had a high rate of graduation with our doctoral uh, students. And I was very, very pleased with that. I would encourage you to do this as well. Act like an admissions committee. There might be one area that struggles a little bit. Not two, but one. Well, there might be an area that spikes upward that wants that. So no, the person doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, the only choice you'll ever have in marrying is marrying a sinner. That's your only choice, and that's your spouse's only choice as well. What you're looking for then is faithfulness and a positive trajectory forward. I told you there had been a lot of breakup and divorce in my family and in my world. And so when I read Jesus' promise in Matthew 28, 20 and Hebrews 13, 5, it brought a lot of comfort to my soul. And he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus Christ knows how to do marriage better than anyone on the planet. He created it and gave away the first bride and performed the first ceremony in the Garden of Eden. And he's been blessing and changing them ever since. And then he said in Hebrews 13, 5, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. You've got to begin with the mission of Christ, and his mission today is to enter your life by grace through faith and walk with you. And you must understand, when Jesus Christ becomes part of your life, Jesus stays with you forever and forever. Jesus never divorces those who belong to him. That is one relationship that is stable forever and forever. And it's merely for the price of repentance and faith. Turn away from being single from Jesus. He's calling you to unite with him. And then trust his cross and his resurrection only for the forgiveness of your sins and the only hope you have of being made right with God. You do that and Jesus Christ will walk with you for the balance of your life and all eternity. Would you quickly stand with me please and let's pray together. God, we praise you 
that you are a God of light and clarity and you don't play with us. You do not play hide-and-go-seek with your ways. Confusion is more our problem than it is yours. And I praise you that there is hope that through Christ every single here can make the right decision in this matter. Lord, we, we don't know who future spouses are, but we do know who the Savior is, and I pray there'll be urgency this morning to begin at this point. We commit that to you and plead for all the help of heaven in this matter. And we've got staff here in the front, and we want to encourage you to come. Step out from where you are and say yes to the Lord Jesus. You need to make sure this relationship with Him is right first before you ever consider another relationship in your life, as serious as it is. And why would you ever want to give your future husband or your future wife a person that does not have divine resources of love? You don't have enough. He is full of it. Come get you some. For the price of repentance and faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. If you'll come, he'll take you and never leave. Tim, would you lead us to sing... I want to ask you to step up from where you are. Come see a staff member, share your spiritual need, and let's get this one right today.